Hello, my darling true crime angels, and welcome to Web Sleuth Radio Podcast. My name is Tricia Griffith, and I'm the proud owner of WebSleuths.com, one of the largest, and I might add, the very best true crime discussion forums in the universe. I've checked, I've checked all corners of the universe. Yeah, we, we are the best, if I do say so myself. I am so thrilled to have on the phone with me an author. She has a stellar reputation. She's written many of the true crime books that we all know and love. Welcome, Caitlin Rother. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, always, and you're <clears throat> welcome back anytime you want, my <laughs> right. dear. Well, before we get into your latest book, tell us about the books that you have written. Give well, I've got I've got fourteen books total, and eleven of them are true crime books, and um, one is a novel, a mystery thriller set in um, San Diego, La Jolla, and Pacific Beach, or two beach communities, and I'm writing a sequel to that right now as we speak. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I had to do something during COVID because the courthouses were closed, and you right. know, I couldn't really get anybody to call me back, the lawyers, <laughs> So, yeah, I've got another book that I'm um, still kind of chipping away at as well on the McStay case. I know you guys have been active in that as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and I've also got uh, a couple memoirs, my own memoir, Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces. Oh, which that's fascinating. I, yeah, which we can talk about during the rest of the program because I couldn't finish it until I sat through the Rebecca Zahau trial versus Adam Shackney. So... We can right. talk some more about that. It's the story of my marriage, my roller coaster marriage to a man who ultimately hung himself in a motel room in Mexico. And and that must have been very difficult to hear Rebecca Zahau's case, remembering back to those those days when you went through having a loved one. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, but it, it actually, I was reliving my own experience. I was sitting in the courtroom, and this psychiatrist, you and I maybe even talked about this during the trial when I was giving you guys some commentary on mm-hmm. what happened in the courtroom. Um, but, yeah, he was going over all of the risk factors that he had identified in Rebecca. He was testifying for Adam Shackney's defense team. Mm-hmm. But basically just saying, you know, there's numbers of things that he had identified in Rebecca's behaviors that he thought uh, convinced him that she had committed suicide. So anyway, it was it was difficult, but it did allow me to process really what happened in my life. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'm a journalist. It's been a good, it was 1999 that this happened and it's been, you know, 22 years. So it took a long time for me to be able to talk about my husband's death. Um, out loud without, you know, being too upset about it. But I've got some distance now, and I was able to use that experience personally and professionally. I mean, I've written other books about suicides and murders and staged suicides and staged murders. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also wrote a story that was nominated for a Pulitzer about a young man here in in San Diego County that um, committed suicide suicide. He set himself on fire. Oh my God. What's the name of that book? Yeah, it was really very, and I got to be very close with his family and Mm -hmm. we're still in touch actually. And they are, um, there was just a kind of a bond there that, you know, what's the name with people who have lost someone the same way. What's, what's the name of that book? 
uh, this was a story. Oh, that a story. I wrote oh, I'm sorry. Paper. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was of his name was Richie Newman, mm-hmm. and he was 19 years old, and he had just graduated from high school, and I think he was about to go into the military. And he, his family had no idea that he was depressed or upset in any way. And one day, you know, he he said goodbye to his. I can't remember. This is such a long time ago. 1990. It was actually right before, like a year or two before my husband did hung himself. So this was very close. And he actually read the story, and we talked about it first too, which is even more oh, crazy. Wow. So he he basically took a some lighter fluid essentially and poured it over himself in the you know in some kind of bushes in next to the Walmart parking lot I mean was he trying to punish himself or you know and I interviewed psychiatrists at the time and Mm -hmm. and I I had another story too that that I won some awards for about another guy that I wrote about for the newspaper who tried to kill himself different multiple different ways and kept failing at it until he finally just decided he put foil on the windows of his condo and he put himself in bed and he stopped eating and drinking. And he basically mummified. And 18 months later, the people who bought his condo, because he obviously hadn't been paying the payments on it, right. walked in and found him in bed. Oh, God. Mummified. So, I mean, I have, I've had professional experience covering these things, too. And what the psychiatrists say is that, you know, these are irrational acts. And, and if you try to apply rationality right. to an irrational act, the person is not in the in the same form, you know state of mind that you and I are in right now. That's... So someone who kills himself by suicide try try to figure out oh that, why would this person do that or what was in their mind? You know, mm-hmm. I talked with my husband before he did it, and he was all over the place, you know, right. and, and I know from reports from a private investigator who went down and, and, and talked to people about it, he was at, behaving very bizarrely, yeah. so, anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot of, of personal and professional knowledge that I brought to this story as a lens to examine it, so I had, you know, I have something to compare right. how Rebecca was acting to and, and the other Exactly. What other people have to say about her behavior, and so that's what I, you know, was able to. Well, let's. I, I did not take a position in the book. I just want to be clear on that. Yeah. So. so you didn't say either way what you thought. You just presented. No, I, I, because I, I'm not convinced either way that mm-hmm. it was a murder or a suicide. So I'm yeah. the perfect objective journalist when it comes to perfect. going down the middle on this case because right. I, I didn't, I didn't take sides. I couldn't take sides, and I didn't want to take sides. Okay, well, everyone, we're talking with Caitlin Rother. <laughs> Caitlin has written a book. It's brand new. It's called Death on Ocean Boulevard, and it's about the Rebecca Zahau case. And let's talk about first, Caitlin, why you chose this, and tell us a little bit about the writing process. How hard was it? Because you have a lot of solid information in there, like uh, text messages and uh, you know emails and things. So you had to get those right. from from solid sources, obviously, but talk about why you chose this and then a bit about the writing process. Okay. Well, as I was just explaining and in the prelude to to this, I have a personal experience that, you know, obviously this case haunted me. I mean, when it first happened and it hit the news, I was intrigued just like everybody else Mm -hmm. because Rebecca was found, you know, Supposedly by Adam Shacknight, he told the 911 operator 
I've got a girl hung herself in the guest house, mm-hmm. which we know now that she was not found in the guest house. According to him, he found her hanging naked, bound, and gagged from a second-story exterior balcony in the courtyard mm-hmm. between the guest house and the main house. So right away, that's a very suspicious death. Right. <laughs> that's what it was initially declared. The sheriff's department investigated it as a, as a homicide. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what was... What was weird about this case is that the sheriff's department really didn't release very much information. So after a seven-week investigation, they declared it a suicide, but they really were very limited in the rationale and what they explained. Mm -hmm. They did not release a lot of what I ended up getting through uh, a couple different sources, the entire sheriff's investigative file. So I have information that no reporters were able to get, mm-hmm. and that only, you know, I, I can't I can't say where I got it, but right. I did not get it from the sheriff's department, I can tell you that. Okay. And so um, there's a lot in there. And, and, and when I then sat through the trial, you know, all these years later, the civil trial, because the house uh, sued uh, Adam Shackney, mm-hmm. initially also Dina and Nina Shackney, who was... Um, Jonas, these people don't know the background. They're not going to know all these names. Let me just briefly sure. describe. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know the case, but there may be some people who don't. Um, so Rebecca Zahau was in a relationship with Jonas Shackney, who was a very wealthy older man who owned a pharmaceutical uh, corporation in Arizona where he and Rebecca were living in the months um, that were not summer months. But um, it came to Coronado, California, which is right near where I live here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and they lived in this. They were living in this historic mansion known as the Spreckles Mansion. It was built in 1908 by John D. Spreckles, the sugar magnate. Okay. Um, and Jonah's little boy, who was from his second marriage with Ina Shackney, um, had this tragic fall from an interior um, balcony, kind of a railing um, on the second floor. We don't know exactly where he was or how he fell, but Rebecca said that she found him, and this is less than 48 hours before Adam Shackney said that he found Rebecca. Mm-hmm. This all happened within 48 hours. This little boy, um, she said she came out of the bathroom, she heard a crash and the dog barking, and she found him lying on the floor, not breathing, his heart not beating, there was a giant uh, glass chandelier that was lying next to him on the floor, broken pieces of glass everywhere, a soccer ball, and a razor scooter. So there's a lot of variables about what could have happened to him and how it happened to him. Mm-hmm. But Rebecca said she didn't know she didn't what happened because she didn't see it. Right. So anyway, um, the reason I got interested in this is because it was such a crazy series of events, the, the conditions that her body was found in. And then the fact that the sheriff's department said it was a suicide and that the house were immediately, um, you know, very upset about this and mm-hmm. said, no, 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 this is a murder. And so it just continued to grab the public's attention. And I know it was very active, very active case for your oh, um, users on WebSleuth. Yes. <clears throat> so I think we were all drawn to it for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I just wanted to know what happened. 
and I never got a satisfactory answer. Right. A lot of unanswered questions, even after sitting through the trial, a lot of the information that was in that sheriff's investigative file was never made public. So I was able to put a lot of that into the book mm -hmm. to try to address a lot of the misinformation and speculation. And, you know, the sheriff's department kept a lot of stuff close to the vet. And why do you think that is? That's what That, to me, honestly... Uh, Caitlin, that to me is also something that speaks volumes because getting any information out of the Sheriff's depo uh, Department about the Re Rebecca Zahau case is like pulling teeth. Why do you think they held, and still do, hold everything they can just inside, close to the vest? Okay, so as a reporter in this town, I mean, before I was writing books, I was an investigative reporter at the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And and I know that the county of San Diego, whether it's law enforcement or not, they don't like to release documents. So, you know, um, the Zahaus ended up winning the case against Adam Shackney, and the jury found him responsible right. for Rebecca's death. Um the sheriff's department then, you know, said, well, we're sticking to the suicide finding, regardless of this jury verdict, and mm -hmm. only because of political pressure during a re-election campaign did, the, did Sheriff Gore decide to do a quote-unquote review, which took nine months, was only supposed to take four, and at the end, we st they still stuck to the suicide findings and did not, did not re-interview anybody, did not interview anybody new, mm -hmm. um, did not retest items that had multiple DNA profiles, which excluded Adam Shacknai. Um, so there are like a number of things in that outside experts have, you know, criticized and, and the house as well, the sheriff's investigation for being flawed. So I can tell you from experience, being a reporter in this town and writing books in this town, sheriff's department doesn't, I just don't think they want to, I mean, I know they believe firmly that science guided their, their ruling because mm -hmm. they said, look, Adam Shackney's fingerprints and DNA were not found anywhere inside the bedroom where the hanging rope was anchored to the bed. Mm -hmm. But we also said, well, you know, we also say, well, the Adam Shackney's fingerprints and DNA were not even on the knife that he admitted to using to cut Rebecca's body down. Right, exactly. So, so I think they don't like the criticism, number one. Mm -hmm. They don't like to have their investigation criticized. Um, and, but what they've said over and over, Sheriff Gore told this to me again privately when we had a two-hour face-to-face interview for this book, he didn't want to re-traumatize the Zahal family. Mm -hmm. And... So, I mean, I, I'm not sure really what to believe, but they've said, number one, they truly believe that based on the science and the forensic evidence, there is no criminal case here against anyone. Right. So, um, I know, and I know they truly believe that. But I also think there's some dignity and some pride issues. I mean, I, I don't know. Why don't they talk with the medical examiner's office? And at least if there's this many questions, why not at least change the death certificate to say undetermined? I mean, that, why would that, that wouldn't hurt anybody. Exactly. You know? And, and I, don't I think understand. it would make the house family happier. I mean, I know they want the criminal case reopened and they want Adam Shackney looked at 
harder as mm-hmm. a criminal suspect. I can see both sides of it, you know? Now, I'm a very bad uh, interviewer. I apologize. We should probably tell people what the heck we're talking about, which is the Rebecca Howe case, okay? And we're talking with Caitlin Rother. Uh, the book is called Death on Ocean Boulevard. Caitlin, let's talk about the beginning of this case. Rebecca Howe moved in with her very wealthy boyfriend, Jonah Shacknai. Mm-hmm. And this all, like you said, this happened because... Uh, his son, Jonah's son, uh, had a tragic accident, fell down the stairs. He was kept alive for, a, uh, I believe, a couple of days, and then he passed. It was actually more like five days. Oh, was so it five days? He was, still, he was still alive when Rebecca was found dead. So that's very important because anybody who thinks that, you know, she felt guilty because he died um, is misinformed because he was not declared brain dead from those injuries that he suffered from that fall mm-hmm. until after she was a couple days after she was gone. Right. So, so that's important. That's very important. Caitlin, let's take it before Adam finds Rebecca Zahal. Okay. And what was Rebecca's state of mind? There were messages uh, between her and her sister and you get a sense of what's going on. Was Jonah mad at Rebecca? Was there any proof of that? Uh, let's talk about the family dynamic before the suicide, but after Max's accident. Well, I looked at those messages, the text messages between Jonah and Rebecca, and they were in the sheriff's investigative file. Um, they were not discussed at the trial, um, but I didn't see any evidence that he was upset with her or that she was apologizing to him or was saying, I'm so sorry for letting Max fall or, you know, or anything like um, he, They were basically calling each other babe, baby. I'm, you know, she mm-hmm. was like, I'm, I, I'm thinking of you. You know, it was more like, I love you. I'm thinking of you. And she was basically just, he was asking her to bring him stuff at the hospital. But I, I looked specifically to see if there was any written evidence supporting this theory that he was was angry at her um, and I didn't see it in the text messages now there was a voicemail that he left for her at 10 minutes to 1 a.m before she was found you know five, right. five or six hours before Adam <clears throat> found her right um, and there that's in the phone records and but we don't know what the message said right, well, right I'm, yeah I'm getting to to that and that is that he told me when I interviewed him, I interviewed him for this book um, eight times, actually. That's Jonah. That's, that's Jonah, the father of Max. Um, a couple hours each time we did this on Skype. He said he was crying on this voicemail. It was 62 seconds long, which I know from the phone records. Um, and he said basically what he told the police or the sheriff's department, which is that, um, you know, I he was very upset because the doctor had told him and Dina that in the best case scenario, Max would never walk or talk again. And he asked her to call him back. And she never called back. Mm-hmm. And so he told me, I, you know, I really wish that I had just asked her to call me back yeah. and not mention the other stuff. Because, you know, the, the detective asked him, you know, during the interview, and I have that too, um, he, she said, well, let's think about it from Rebecca's standpoint. Could she 
have been feeling like you blamed her because you wouldn't let her come to the hospital and, you, you know, because she didn't get along with Dina, mm-hmm. Max's mother, and, and Jonah told Rebecca, you can't, you know, you can't come to the hospital. I don't want it there to be a scene. And right. so I'm sure that that did not sit well with Rebecca, who loved that little boy. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she did feel bad because she was the only adult in charge. The question is, did she feel angry or that Jonah blamed her? Did she feel angry at him for feeling like he blamed her or did she blame herself? She never mentioned that to anybody that mm-hmm. we know of. Um so we don't know, but that's what the sheriff's department decided, that she, that she did this to herself out of guilt for for the little boy's injuries because she was the only adult in the house at the time. Right. And let's, I, didn't, I didn't see any evidence um, in writing that Jonah blamed her. He told me that he left her that message. He was very upset, but he wasn't blaming her. He said the same thing to the detective. So. Well, let's and let's talk about that uh, voice okay. mail message because it's not available. Um, well, that's that's what does the house say? It's it's never they it was deleted, and we don't know who deleted it because that's weird. the sheriff's department didn't take any fingerprints or DNA from Rebecca's phone because mm-hmm. they said, well, we figured it was her phone and we find her DNA and fingerprints on it. But they say it was a murder. They say Rebecca wasn't the person who deleted that voicemail. The the sheriff's department told me, well, there were no other messages on her phone. Therefore, if you're a habitual deleter when you get a voicemail and delete it then that fits the pattern and that's what they decided okay so they they were never able to retrieve it because um there were some technology issues they couldn't get into her phone Mm -hmm. and then they tried to get it from the provider and it wasn't available so does the house don't necessarily you know they say well we don't have any proof but that's what jonah actually said all we have is his word and that's true we don't and again two very important points here that Jonah was not blaming her for Max's accident, and uh, Rebecca never indicated that she felt guilty because that's a whole, right. that's a crux of everything for her supposedly committing suicide in this very bizarre way. And the fact that the, uh, the voicemail is no longer available. Again, right. both of those to me, in my opinion, and I, I'm fortunately not... I, I, Fortunately, I, I don't have to um, remain totally uh, unbiased <laughs> you here. You can have whatever opinion you want. Right. That's, that's why I put the book. Yeah. So everybody can get all the evidence that they didn't have before that exactly. wasn't made public. And I'm leaving it up to the reader to make up their own minds. So that everybody's free to have their own opinion. Exactly. Okay, so that they they didn't Rebecca didn't go to the hospital because uh, Jonah didn't want a big scene. I, that I get. I understand that. You know, there's one there's one scene that I put in the book though that I didn't know about before and Jonah told me this. Um, he she did come at one point. So so initially she went to the Max was taken by ambulance to the nearest trauma center, mm-hmm. and um, Jonah she was in the back of a police cruiser. They were taking her over there. She got a call I guess from Jonah on the way over there, and he said don't come over, and she came anyway. So she stayed in the car, but then one of the police officers came and got her or was standing outside or something and she went in anyway and mm-hmm. she saw him running around and he didn't say anything to her until she left. So then she's going back and forth to the hospital to then take him to the children's hospital because they specialize in more traumatic injuries and head injuries for children. Mm-hmm. And she was basically ferrying his 
friends and relatives and, and his wife, ex-wife, sister, et cetera, back and forth from the airport to the hospital. And she did come to the door of Max's room. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, what was her reaction? What was she? And he said she just stood there and, and she was crying. And he said, I didn't, I didn't think she should be in there. Right. And so I don't know exactly what the exchange would have been, but she, it was kind of unclear to me whether he was like, you know, you need to go right now. But he basically told me he didn't want her there because he didn't want to cause a scene at that hospital either with one of Dina's friends coming or Dina herself. And, you know, why is she here kind of thing. So, right. um, so she wasn't allowed to sit and, you know, obviously it was very upsetting. I guess he was pretty beat up. I mean, his, he had bruises across his face, oh. and he had all these tubes that he was connected to, and so it was very, it was an upsetting, I, I've seen pictures, and it was pretty horrible, the poor little boy, which oh. really took quite a fall. That's too bad. Uh, we're talking with Caitlin Rother, author of the book Death on Ocean Boulevard. This is about the Rebecca Zahau case, and uh, we only have about 30 minutes for the whole interview, and we're not going to even begin to touch everything, but <laughs> I can assure you, you will sit there, and your mouth will just open and drop on the floor. You'll need a spatula to pick it up. Some of the things <laughs> that are revealed, you're like, whoa, but I want to get to um, a, a couple of things here. Okay, so after, uh, let's talk about after now, after Rebecca Zahal was found. Mm-hmm. Did Jonah ever, in your opinion, ever even suspect that it, his, it was his brother that could have possibly done this? Okay, so I'm being very careful not to put my opinion into this book. So okay. I'm just going to go based on what he told me and go. based on the evidence. Okay? That's what I want. So, um, you know, he, he testified to this. And he told me this, that basically, you know, he never suspected that Adam could have done anything to her. And he mm -hmm. testified to that at the trial. Um, but, you know, it's his brother. Right. And so, I, you know, I think you kind of would expect him to say that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he really thinks or if he really told me what he really thinks. I don't know that. But right. that's what he said. And, okay, let's uh, talk about... In more detail, Adam. I, I should also I should also add that he did help pay for his brother's defense. Oh yes, that you couldn't get those lawyers on, uh, you know, captain of a ship salary or whatever uh, Adam did. Yeah, you could. Well, it was his homeowner's insurance. Is, uh, oh. Adam's homeowner's insurance paid for most of it? Oh, okay. I didn't I know had, that. This was quite a. This was there's a lot of debate over this, and mm -hmm. there's no way for me to prove that this was true or not. But I I know I did ask Jonah specifically about this. Um, and he told me, I think it was like, a, I can't remember the exact ratio, but I think he said it was something like seven to one or something. And he, the insurance company paid for the majority of it and he paid for some of it because okay. the, the lawyer who, uh, led the, the, the legal defense in court is a pretty big, expensive corporate attorney who was Jonah's attorney mm -hmm. and they, uh, Adam's insurance company, they made an arrangement that they would use the junior partners for most of the trial work, pre-trial work. And this guy, um, Dan Williams, was, um, I'm sorry, Dan Webb. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Dan Webb. 
um, he he they he he was only going to you know be speaking in court. But the rest of the work in the trial prep was all done by the the lesser attorneys that it. didn't cost as much, and so the Adams Insurance Company paid for for that under that arrangement. So okay. I that that was new information yeah. that I think a lot of people were speculating about but didn't know. So yeah, that's in the book. Well, he could certainly afford to pay for the whole thing, I think. But yeah, that's that's interesting. It's like OJ in the civil trial. You know, his homeowner's insurance, I believe, is what uh, what he used. But anyway, so okay, let's talk about more detail about how Rebecca was found. Now, I'm going by the court, what was said in court, what I've been told by, you know, people, the family members of Rebecca, mm -hmm. and it was so weird, and that's why, <clears throat> that's why this case is just, uh, it will forever, until it's, if, if ever solved, it will forever uh, be a case that everybody will look at it and go, what the heck? Now... Rebecca uh, was of what descent? She was born in uh, Burma, which okay. is now called Myanmar. Okay. Now, she was found naked. She was right. found naked, hands tied behind her back, her feet right. tied together. There's t a t-shirt yes. wrapped around her. Okay, so there, there was a, the red hanging rope. Okay. Which was the same rope that was around her ankles and hands. Mm -hmm. And these are all separate pieces of rope, by the way. Right. Um, there is a theory that she was possibly hog-tied at one point so mm -hmm. that, you know, her hands and feet were behind her. Right. You know, how and, they do that in the rodeo. And um, if you look at it, if you if you look at it those... It kind of look like that. Yeah, it kind of does. And I, I don't want... I don't want you to give yeah. your opinion. I'll give my opinion. Which I'm, I'm not admit. giving my opinion. I'm just saying. Yeah. I think I I could I can picture that. Sure. But she was found where they were cut. Yeah. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so um, <laughs> she had the the t-shirt stuffed in her mouth. Yeah. The, yeah. So what I was gonna say is, I'm sorry. The t-shirt was uh, the the hanging rope was around her neck, mm -hmm. and then the t-shirt uh, over her hair. This is the important point. Over her hair, and then the t-shirt was wrapped around her head and around her mouth like a gag on top of the rope, which was on top of her hair. So mm -hmm. there are women who said, you know, you have a reflex. You just, no matter whether you're going to kill yourself or not, they thought that that was very... You pull your hair out. Yeah, you pull your hair out. Because you pull your hair out, it would feel weird, even if it's just for a second. It's right. uncomfortable. So, so uh, supposedly what, uh, what Adam and uh, his brother are saying is that Rebecca tied the rope around a bedpost, went outside where there's a little balcony, and then jumped off. Now, there are injuries to her head that don't make any sense, in my opinion. And, mm -hmm. oh, I forgot, there was a message written in block letters, mm -hmm. and it said, well, uh, give the exact quote if you remember it. She saved him, can you save her? Right. Now, it was in block letters, and at the... the um, court case, the civil case, mm -hmm. the the family had an expert come on and show that that was Adam Shacknai's writing. And well, let's just be clear on one thing. This is a civil case and a civil standard, which is different. more likely than not. Yes. And it was, it was more likely than not Adam's handwriting more, I'm sorry, more, more likely to be Adam's handwriting than Rebecca's handwriting, but it wasn't a definitive Exactly. It was Adam's handwriting, just to be clear. Yeah, a civil case, okay. the the um, 
the level mm-hmm. is is the bar is much lower. Let's put it that way. Right. Than, right. than a uh, criminal case. And less specific too. Like yes. I said. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and you know, if you if you look at the pictures, look to me, it looks just like Adams. So anyway, supposedly she jumped off. I don't know what your opinion is. Yeah, you do. I think it's kind of obvious. Just kind of obvious. I, I just, yeah, it's so bizarre. I do want to say one thing. I want to interject one thing. Sure. And that is, um, now initially, what's interesting and what I didn't know until I read the sheriff's investigative file, because this did not come out in court, um, when, when Jonah Shackner was initially interviewed by the detective, mm-hmm. he was telling them he didn't think she would have committed suicide. Really? He said, I... I just can't see her doing this to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in the ICU with my son. Why would she do this now when I she's my support system and you know I I needed her support. She just it's just not something she would do and she wouldn't do it like this to draw such attention to to me and to my business and and by the way it's really hurting my business. Can you guys identify me that you know that I'm not a suspect publicly? Mm-hmm. I mean that turned out to be a whole thing too. So that's in the interview transcripts, but what's, what's important to, to state now is that he has since decided absolutely definitively that she did commit suicide. Right. So his initial so, thought that... Was that she wouldn't. Right. Just yeah. like her family. Exactly. And just like her friends. And just like, you know, that was the other interesting thing about going through the interview transcripts. Pretty much everybody they interviewed... Um, um, except for Adam, um, Jonah initially said this. Uh, Rebecca's ex-husband Neil Nalepa said this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca's two sisters, Snowham and Mary. Um, Mary's her older sister, and Snowham was her younger sister, one of her younger sisters who she was very close to, and also um, one or two college friends or work friends. Mm-hmm. Um, they all said she wouldn't have done this. Right. She would not have done this to herself. And what was also clear, though, in the interview transcripts, is that by the time they interviewed Neil Nalepa, which was only four days after Adam called 911, mm-hmm. they were already saying, well, you know, we pretty much got, you know, Dan doesn't seem like she'd be able to do this kind of thing, and, you know, she was at the hospital. Jonah was at the hospital. Their whereabouts have been accounted for. Pretty much cleared Adam. You know, he seems to have, you know, he's been cooperating. And, you know, pretty much cleared all these people. They had no suspects that they were looking at. Right. And this was in four days. So they were already pretty much leaning. And they said so. We're leaning toward the suicide thing. That's four days. Yeah. And, and in so, such, yeah, yeah. With such bizarre circumstances. To die like that naked. Uh, I would think that that would, if if she did commit suicide, which I don't believe she did, but that would be to show her shame. And like you said, they all, everybody that knew her, even Jonah, said, no, she wouldn't do this. This, to me, looks like it was put together by somebody who thought this is how a shame suicide would look, just having no clue. But let's talk about Adam Shacknine. I do want to I do want to interject one more thing, and yes. that is, there's one position I am taking in my book, and yes. that is that I believe that this scene was staged. It so was. It, was, it, it was staged either as, as a homicide mm-hmm. meant to look like a suicide, or it was a suicide meant to look like a homicide. Gotcha. So 
So what I'm saying is there are so many unanswered questions and things that don't make sense on both sides, mm -hmm. because if you look at the suicide theory or you look at the murder theory, there's holes in both. Right. And there's things in support of both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the injuries, for example. There are things in the book that nobody has ever heard before, and it's uh, fascinating. Let's talk about Michael Berger. Who is he and why is he important in Rebecca's story? Okay, so during the trial, there was a snippet of a deposition played by this guy, Michael Berger, and there was also a snippet of a deposition played by Rebecca's ex-husband, Neil Nalepa. Now, these two depositions turned out to be just, they kind of piqued my interest, but nobody really, there were no lawyers commented on what these snippets revealed they just kind of used them, the defense used them to try to paint Rebecca as an unstable, impulsive woman who would have committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to get deeper and, and, and be fair to Rebecca and to her family and try to find out more about what these people said just in these snippets. So um, Rebecca, for example, had told her family that the reason that she left her husband repeatedly, I might add, was because he verbally and physically abused her. Mm -hmm. And so Neil told the detectives in the interview that I have um, that that was not true. Mm -hmm. um, but he did acknowledge that that was what Rebecca had told her family. He knew that. Um, he said a lot of other things about the whole course of their relationship, and he gave his side of it, obviously. But that did sort of give me some more insight into some of her behaviors mm -hmm. and, and their weird dynamic. But while they were still together... She started seeing this guy, Michael Berger. She was still living with Neil at the time. Um, she told Michael Berger she wasn't wearing a wedding ring. Mm -hmm. They met at some kind of um, a run for cancer. His mom was a cancer survivor, and she was working for this eye clinic. So she was at one of these tables, you know, at a, under a canopy, and they started talking, and they started dating. Yeah, she told Michael Berger that she was going through a divorce. When, in fact, she was still living with her husband. Time went on. They started seeing each other more regularly, and then she moved in with him. And um, it was obvious to Neil that he didn't know what was going on. Right. And she was telling Michael Berger that she was going through a divorce when, in fact, nobody had filed any paperwork at all, neither one of them. Mm -hmm. So then she disappears one day. And this is kind of the snippet that came out in court. Um, and, and he thought she had been kidnapped because she called him several times. She didn't go to work. She never showed up at work. She didn't come home. And, you know, a couple a day, a day later, she's calling him saying, they've got me. They took me. And he said, who, who? She, they've got something over my eyes. Where are you? I don't know. I can't see. And she was crying on the phone and I want to be with you, but they've taken me. So over the course of a couple of days, she kept calling back and then finally said, you know, I have to get back with Neil and I can't see you anymore. But then she showed up and he took her to the police station and um, long story short, the police talked to Rebecca and sent her and, and him away without him being able to participate or discuss anything with the detectives. Mm -hmm. Now, according to the police report, which I got a copy of, she said to the detectives, well, uh, I'm, I'm breaking up with him and I haven't told him yet. But he, she never told that to him. Right. She just, she just left and went back to Neil and never told him that she was, that she had done that. So what, what, you know, you start getting a picture of her which was which was a deeper 
know, I interviewed Michael Berger several times, um, and he was convinced that she had been kidnapped because he genuinely heard fear in her voice when she was on the phone with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so my point is, she showed different faces and different parts of herself to different people and told conflicting stories to her family, to her boyfriend, to her husband then at the time, and then later um, when she was arrested for shoplifting, uh, Dina Schack and I found out about it somehow because it, she had gone through a diversion program, and that means your records wiped, but somehow she found these records, which I also got a copy of. Mm-hmm. The story that she told Jonah about what happened was completely contradicted in the police report. So my point is, She's telling different stories to different people, and I think she was a much more troubled and complicated person than I think her family was aware of. But let me let me ask you this, Caitlin, and, and mm-hmm. I say this with love in my heart. Mm-hmm. Why would any of this even matter, whether she committed suicide or murder? Why would that, why would any of that weigh into this case? Because it goes to your other question, what was her state of mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that she was a simple, happy, strong person where, and not troubled at all, that her family believes that she was. That's what she showed them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they're lying. I'm saying that's what she showed them. Right. Well, I can't wait. I haven't finished the book. I can't wait to finish it. I was, oh, I have it on, I have both. I have a hard copy and audio. And I would recommend this book. When you want the facts of the case, you're going to hear facts in this case. And um, again, Caitlin does not even come close to saying what her opinion is. Caitlin, you present just the facts in this right. book. And that's one of the reasons I I love it. Death on Ocean Boulevard, yeah. inside the Coronado Mansion case. Caitlin Rother, thank you so much for joining us. You can get the book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, about the Rebecca Zahau case. You can get it on Amazon. Is there any other uh, website you'd like to plug or anywhere else people can pick up the book? You can pick up the book at any bookstore or or order it if they don't have it. Uh, Barnes & Noble has it uh, across the country, no matter where you are. Um, But I do hope that people will support their independent bookstores. If anybody wants a signed copy... They can go to my website, CaitlinRother.com, to my virtual tour calendar. I have uh, a whole bunch of links there to uh, TV and other podcast interviews that I've done, as well as a couple links for places to buy signed copies. Wonderful. And Caitlin if, you any problem, if you have any problem with that, you can also email me through my website, and I can help you out with that. Wonderful. Uh, Caitlin Rother. We will put the uh, CaitlinRother.com link under the description of this show. And I can't thank you enough. And thank you for your patience with me, uh, everybody. Oh, no problem. (laughs) Caitlin's been so patient. I've just been a total, like, you know, dummy here having to start and stop and start and stop. So thank you, Caitlin. There's no problem. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to your people. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Until we meet again, my darling true crime angels, Trisha Griffith saying so long. It's WebSleuths Radio Podcast, and we'll see you again soon. Don't forget, patreon.com if you want to support WebSleuths. Five bucks a month. Great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.